and and uh, beautiful drive here this morning. Um, it's fun to collaborate as churches. We've done this the last few summers, and I just love Pastor Dave and his kingdom-minded heart to kind of work together on different series. And this one's a cool one because you get to look at faith heroes and say, okay, what can we learn from them, and what can they teach us, and how can they inspire us? I was actually inspired last week because I tuned in a little bit to your broadcast here, and I saw Pastor Dave, it looked like he was introducing Rick, but instead he introduced his grandson, and that was awesome. That was awesome, like this little bald person who's changed my life, and then all of a sudden he shows a picture of his grandson. That was amazing. Um, and then, then I heard Rick's introduction of me, and he went to throw me under the bus by saying that I like the Buffalo Bills. And in the broadcast, I clearly heard cheering. Am I in Bill's country here? Other than this little crowd over here, this is an awesome place. I love it. Um, I'm born and raised Buffalo, New York. And so Bill's Mafia is in my blood. And this is the year. This is the year. I've only been saying that every year of my life. But this is the year if you're a Bill's fan. Let's, let's hope anyway, right? So let me begin by asking you a question. Uh, and I'm going to have you raise your hand. Who here is insecure? Some of you are like, come on, are you serious? Who's going to raise their hand for that? Some of you are so secure, you actually raise your hand. That was very impressive. <laughs> According to the latest research, as they've researched literally around the world, they have figured out what percent of people are insecure, and currently the rate is at 100%. And what's ironic about that is people who seem most secure are often the ones who aren't. They've just learned to compensate with confidence and calmness, but even those of us who have maybe learned to compensate for insecurity, we still battle this tremendous insecurity. And our confidence or our, our calmness or whatever the case may be just kind of masks our insecurity, but it doesn't actually deal with the root issues of where that comes from. And so for most people, there's this voice in our heads for much of our life, and sometimes that voice says stuff like, God can't use me. You ever said that? I'm not good enough. I just, I have too much baggage I feel like a failure, and that voice is a lot of things just like that, often for a lot of our lives, and we have this chip on our shoulders, we try to prove ourselves and prove our worth, but what if God delights in using messed up people? Like, what if we're not God's plan B? What if he genuinely enjoys plan A is to use really messed up people? And today we're going to learn about a faith hero, due to her past, her life should have included a tremendous amount of insecurity. But what you find instead is something very different. And to me, it's incredibly inspiring and challenging. And so we're going to learn from this faith hero. So if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Joshua chapter 2 and meet me there. If you have a Bible app, you can tap uh, New Living Translation. That's what I'm going to read out of today. And so NLT, you'll, you'll be able to follow word for word with me. Uh, and if you're joining us online or you're in the commons, just a special hello 
to all of you and go Bills to you too. <laughs> this part of the room, I'm just not even going to pay attention. And you're like, no matter what you say today, Justin, we're not going to pay attention to you either. So who do you, who do you guys root for anyway over here? Giants, I feel as bad for you as you probably have felt for Bills fans all these years. So it's, it's rough being a Giants fan. Lions fan. There's a lot of depressed people in this room. <laughs> Talk about messed up people, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, let me give you a little background before we dive into Joshua 2. So there were these people who grew up hearing the stories young people, and the, and the stories came from their parents, and the stories often went back to one day. It was, it was the turning point for their parents. It was this epic day. It was the day when their parents were on the edge of stepping into their new homeland, and it was going to be this beautiful and bountiful new land. They were going to live in houses they didn't build. They were going to eat crops that they hadn't planted, and they were going to snack from fruit trees that they hadn't grown. And it was going to be something they had dreamed about all their lives. And all they needed to do was step into the land, ready to fight, and let God give them the victory. But instead of doing that, they hesitated. And they sent scouts to spy out the land. And those scouts came back and they said, hey, the land is as good as we thought it was. But the inhabitants of the land are giants and the cities are walled. And the people, rather than obeying God and doing what he asked, they... They, they had something grow in their hearts called fear, and they didn't step forward in faith. Instead, they fell back in fear. And in that moment of just cowardly disbelief, God withdrew his offer of the land. And it was what was supposed to be the best day of their lives turned into the worst day. And so they tried to compensate for that, and, and they're like, okay, God, uh, never mind. We're going to go in. We're going we're gonna to do what you want now. And God's like, it's, it's too late. And they went in anyway and tried to take the land, and they were crushed militarily because God wasn't fighting for them, and they were humiliated. So where today's story picks up is 40 years later. All those parents, they're, they're dead except for just a couple. They're, they're dead. They'd wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. God said, you can't have the land. I'll give it to your kids. You can't have the land. You wouldn't go in in faith when I gave you the opportunity. And so now their kids are back to the edge of the promised land, and they're about to do what their parents had failed to do. But first they decide to do exactly what their parents did, and they send some scouts to go spy out the land. And you're like, ooh, this is deja vu. Like, we're about to do this all over again. And this is where our story picks up as the scouts go in to spy out the land. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Joshua... And Joshua was one of the original scouts from 40 years prior. He was one of them who said, yeah, the giants are there and the cities are walled, but let's obey God. They didn't listen to Joshua. But Joshua is an older man now. He's, he's allowed to go into the land. He's a leader of his people. So he secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of the prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. So just picture with me this scene. These scouts are secretly going to spy out the land. They cross the Jordan River. They go to Jericho, which was the first walled city that they would have to take over if they're going to go live in the land. And so militarily, it's, it's the keystone. I mean, you've got to get Jericho if you're going to walk into this new land. 
and they find shelter at the home of a prostitute. Now, they weren't there for her services. They were there because that's a really good cover. That's a place where you can kind of come and go anonymously. Strangers were often going back and forth from this house, and they'd be less noticed than if they had to stay at the local inn. And so they cleverly stay at this house. But somehow, and I'm not sure how, word leaks to to the leader of Jericho, the king, that they're there. Verse 2. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Now, this isn't a request from the king. This is a royal order. This was a demand. Rahab must comply. And I'm sure the spies in her house right now are sweating bullets because their lives are literally in the hands of a foreign prostitute. Great place to be. Verse 4. Rahab had hidden the two men. But she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Rahab sticks out her neck to protect and hide these two guys. Why on earth would she do that for two guys she's never met and doesn't know? Well, we're going to see her motive next. It's fascinating. Look at verse 8. Before the the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. And here's what she tells them. I know the Lord has given you this land. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know that what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. Look what she says next. For the Lord, your God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I've helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho's conquered, you'll let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. Rahab believes something that her people and her king refuse to accept. She believes that the Israelites are soon going to be in her city. And they're going to own it. She thinks they're going to defeat her people. But she's, she's definitely being traitorous right here. There's no doubt about it. But her motive isn't just selfish. She's not just trying to protect herself and her family. Her actions are rooted in her faith. She believes, as we just read, she believes in the God of the Israelites. And I'm pretty sure when the spies decided to stay at the home of a local prostitute, they didn't expect that they were going to stay with a believer. But that's exactly what they found. Let me just reread what she told them at the end of verse 11. For the Lord your God 
is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. I can imagine these spies are laying on the roof and she's down there lying to protect them. And they're thinking, why is she on the side of the roof? And then she comes up and admits, I believe in your God. I can imagine them shooting glances at, at them, each other like, how'd she get to believe in our God? Isn't she? Isn't she a Christian? Isn't she a foreign? What happened in this lady's life and in her heart to make her a believer in our God? Let's read the rest of this story. It's kind of cool what transpires. The men say this, we offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety. You just saved our lives, we'll save yours. If you don't betray us, we'll keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us this land. Then, since Rab's house was built into the town hall, town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when they've returned, you can go your way. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out into the street and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside this house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. I accept your terms, she replied. And she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. She believed it was going to happen. It was going to happen soon. The spies went up into the hill country and stayed there three days, just like she told them to, advised them to. The men who were chasing them searched everywhere along the road, but they finally returned without success. Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that happened to them. The Lord has given us the whole land, they said, for all the people in the land are terrified of us. How did they get that report? They got it from a foreign prostitute named Rahab. Here's these young people on the edge of the promised land. And they had already decided we're not going to make the same mistake as our parents. And they send out these scouts and the scouts come back. And they, and they have this report that's favorable. And these young people, bolstered by the, sky, the, the report of the spies, <laughs> single-handedly rescued by Rahab, the prostitute, decide to go in and take the land. And the rest is history. They do indeed in the next few days go and win an incredible military victory at Jericho. And that's the first of many cities that they conquer as they go to live in this new land. And the rest of their lives, they would tell stories about this foreign lady named Rahab who would end up living with them. She would become part of their people. And she was that unlikely woman of faith who rescued their spies and helped pave the way to victory. And there's kind of a twist to her story. There's a stunning end that you wouldn't expect. She and her family don't simply die out. She marries into the Jewish line. 
And in Matthew, I want to show you a verse that's kind of cool. It says, it says this about Rahab. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And then it lists the genealogy of Jesus going back to Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, became the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus Christ. She married a guy. Their son's name was Boaz. Boaz was one of the most generous guys you can find in the entire Bible. Really kind, really generous. Generous to this young widow named Ruth that they would go on to marry and they would be part of the line of Jesus. It doesn't look like Rahab was God's plan B. Looks like God always intended to use her to rescue the spies, to pave the way for them to go to the promised land and to become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. <laughs> she was a rescuer to the Jews and would go on to be part of the line that would rescue the whole world. And then there's this cool thing. If you're a baseball fan, the Hall of Faith is in Hall of Fame, <laughs> is in Cooperstown. If you're a believer, the Hall of Faith is in Hebrews 11. Guess who gets an honorable mention in the Hall of Faith? Check out Hebrews 11.31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. How does that sentence begin? By what? What made Rahab have faith? What made her so brave? She was just like us. She had a ton of baggage. She had many reasons to feel insecure and ashamed. And yet she aligned herself with the God of heaven and earth. And he fueled her faith and he gave her courage beyond anyone else in her city. And so she used that faith. She relied on that faith to do some impossible things when the king gave her a direct order. She hid the spies. She risked her life to help them escape if you study history, you know that there were many people and families that did a similar thing across Europe during the Holocaust. And they took in Jewish families and hid them behind false walls and in secret compartments of their homes. And they were willing to risk it all for one simple reason. They thought they were doing the right thing, even if it cost their life. Without Rahab... I'm not sure how this story ends. I don't know if this generation would have gone into that land. If those spies had been killed, I don't know the level of panic that might have set in. <laughs> she was this imperfect person who was in the right place at the right time and let God use her. But here's the deal. In this series on faith heroes, that's often what you find. You find a very broken, imperfect, messed up person who's in the right place, the right time for God to use. But what's easy to miss is this. In every story in the Bible where you have a hero, that hero, that human hero, isn't the real hero. They're simply aligning themselves with a bigger hero. And that's the bigger truth that I don't want you to miss with Rahab's story. She wasn't defined by her family. She wasn't defined by her place of birth. She wasn't defined by her occupation. She wasn't defined by her failures. 
she became defined by her faith. Anyone who aligns with heaven's hero can become a faith hero. Will you say that with me? Anyone who aligns with heaven's hero can become a faith hero. Do you believe that? Can I convince you? In, in Jesus' dying moments, right over a thousand years later, from the line of Rahab was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus is dying on a, on a Roman cross. He's bleeding. He's naked. He's in agony of body and mind. And his accusers are standing on the ground all around him, mocking him mercilessly. And next to him is a violent criminal who is also mocking him mercilessly, making his final hours even more agonizing and torturous than they already were. But unexpectedly, someone comes to his rescue. It's not one of his family members standing there watching. It's not even one of his followers. It is a criminal dying on another cross. That man has nothing to offer Jesus. That man has hours left to live. And he's dying a death he deserves for his crime. But he's watched and listened to Jesus the last few hours. And something started to grow in his heart. It's this little thing called faith. He saw how Jesus reacted. He saw how he died. And he began to believe. And he shuts down the attacks of the other criminal two crosses over. He says, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die. We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Just a couple hours watching this guy, and he's like, this guy's innocent. He then looks at Jesus, and he simply says this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow, I don't know why, this criminal believes that Jesus is going to live on after he dies, and he's got a kingdom. He, he, he believes. Like Rahab, this guy's got a shameful past. Past. He's got nothing to offer Jesus. Nothing. He can't even volunteer to help at church the next week. He won't have a next week. He's got hours to live. He has nothing to give Jesus other than his belief. But to Jesus, that was enough. And Jesus turns and looks at him and replies and says this. I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> I'm sure those watching listening that day at the cross were stunned by what they heard. Like, did you just hear this right? The first person to be invited into paradise with Jesus is a criminal who's being executed for his crimes. Imagine the scene in, in heaven, in paradise, as Jesus welcomes this guy in. This guy who spent his, his life making a mess of his life. Hurting people, robbing from people. And Jesus proves in this moment that there are no resume requirements to become God's kid. Your family, your education, your social status, your personality, even what ball team you might root for, at the end of the day, they don't matter to your eternity. There is only one requirement. 
do you believe? Do you align yourself with God? From Abraham and Sarah to Joseph, from Moses to Rahab, from David to Peter and Paul, every single one of these men and women became heroes for a simple reason. Their faith. All of them had baggage. All of them were messed up. They all made questionable decisions, sometimes even after they started following God, often after they were following God. But it was not their actions that made them heroes. It was God's actions that saved them. And they simply aligned themselves with heaven's hero. Heaven's hero. And they became faith heroes. My wife uh, is a photographer, and she once worked with a co-worker named Art. I'll tell you a little bit about Art. Talented photographer. But his life was a mess. He had failed at relationships, at parenting, at marriage. And he had a difficult past. He just didn't work well with people. He lived the life of a loner. He called himself a hermit. But Annie and I noticed that there was this, there was this curiosity in him about God. And he... He and I became friends, and we began to meet over a shared love of Chinese food. And we would go to Chinese buffets, and we'd eat, and we'd just talk. We'd talk about life. We'd talk about politics. We'd talk about aliens. That was a favorite topic of his. Talked about every topic under the sun. Despite his past, and it was rough, he wanted to know about Jesus. But his past kept him from surrendering his life to Jesus. In 2006, Art was diagnosed with leukemia and lymphoma. And it began a long and painful eight-year battle with cancer. (laughs) Through that battle, his hunger for God stayed consistent. In fact, it even grew. But so did his certainty that God could never forgive someone like him. But he kept asking questions that were nagging him. He kept asking, how did we get here? He thought for sure we were just evolved animals. But the more he thought through that, the more he just saw too much design. He loved nature. He loved being out in the woods. And he said, there's too much design to chalk up my existence to random chance. So he just started exploring world religions. He explored tons of world religions. And they all left him feeling disillusioned. He was convinced that he was from a different planet. Hence our discussions about aliens a lot. And he was convinced that he must have been here, dropped off by his mother's ship accident. But he couldn't make sense of that either. He struggled to trust people, and finally he decided the only trustworthy source of information he could find after a lifelong pursuit was a collection of 66 books written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years. And so he began to pour his energy into understanding the Bible and understanding the story it tells. Now, he wouldn't come to church, but he began watching online every week. And soon I would get these weekly emails from Art Sunday afternoon. That's how I knew that he was joining us online, because he would have this running commentary about the message with all these questions. And next thing I know, he had invested in Bible software he wanted to follow along from home and dig deeper but he just couldn't bring himself to believe 
he would frequently end his emails to me with this phrase, one more day closer to freedom. He was just convinced whatever's on the other side has got to be better than this one. But he was haunted by this question. How can I be forgiven for my past? Until the last week of his life, that's the question that plagued him. He felt the weight of his choices. He felt the weight of his past. And he knew, after studying this book, that the Bible teaches you can have peace with God. He knew he could be forgiven. He knew that all you needed to do was believe and confess. But that answer was too simple for him to accept. And so forgiveness and healing and peace, it remained just out of reach for him. Just a few weeks before he took his last breath, here's the email I received from him. He said, Pastor Justin, still thinking of confession, commitment to him, he put in quotes, and just what to expect in the next place. Perhaps my wanting out of this lifetime so much for so long has finally manifested as the current medical situation. Smiling here, remembering, be careful what you wish for as you may get it. However, there have been so many unanswered wishes, dreams, and prayers. How do you figure out the creator? Winding down for the night and feeling tired, perhaps we'll find time again to discuss spiritual matters. And Christmas is getting close. Laughing again as I remember once so long ago walking alone on Christmas Eve night and wishing Jesus a happy birthday. Wondering if he was listening to me. Hard. He was admitted to the hospital shortly after this. And I one night was talking to him on the phone just after midnight and, and I asked him, I said, do you remember how you can have peace with God? He knew his time was limited, as did I. And his answer was, yeah, I do. Maybe I'll see you on the other side. I had a hard time going to sleep after that call. He was about to slip away, and he wasn't ready for the other side. He was so close, and he had been so close for eight years. And he was still so far from God. That Sunday after church, I, I went down to visit him. And in the hospital room, Art, in his weakened state, looked at me and said, I finally did it. I said, what'd you do, Art? Did you, did you finally surrender to God? Yes. Wait, did you accept his forgiveness? was stunned. I asked him many questions to make sure that he had truly found the healing and forgiveness that had eluded him for years. And the answer, very clearly, was yes, I have. And death was no longer something he feared. He knew that he was forgiven. Art is one of those guys who never said something he didn't mean. And for eight years, he had firmly said no to Jesus. But that day, for the first time in his life, he said yes. And Jesus' love and forgiveness filled his heart, and it was stronger than all his pain. Two days later, I was visiting him with what would be our last time together. And before I left, I just reached out to shake his hand, and he yanked me close to his chest, and he whispered one last message. He says, I've, I've been back and forth a few times the past two days. 
saw people. I saw light. I looked at him and smiled. I said, you don't have to be afraid of that light anymore, Art. You know where you're going. And he just shook his head firmly, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, I am not afraid of anything. And just a few days, and he was gone. Like that, this brand new kid adopted into the family of God got to go to be with God in forever. A lifetime of regret and sin and baggage forgiven in a minute from a God who loves and uses and rescues people like Rahab and a thief on a cross and a dying guy named Art who had rejected him all his life. In the last days of his life, Art stopped fighting God and the peace that he longed for his whole life now flooded his heart. Told you about the research on insecurities, 100%. Are insecure. Do you know that the human death rate is the same number? Is your heart right with God? That is the most important question that we can ask ourselves and the people around us. Jericho, it was about to be destroyed, but one lady in the city believed. And God used her in amazing ways. All of us stand on the edge of eternity, and like Art and Rahab, Jesus is just waiting to extend his forgiveness and grace to us. Art shared with me a song that the last two years of his life, he said he listened to hundreds of times. Now, remember, he's not a believer at this point, but it's this song called, I Will Rise Again. And in a moment... We're going to play it, and, and, and we're going to watch it together. But here's what Art said about this song in an email two years before he died, two years before he surrendered his life to Jesus. He says, this song, this hymn, so eerily rings as truth in the heart, symbolically, if nothing else. It goes without saying there's no intent of comparing self with the great master teacher, the main theme of the hymn. How grand it would be to actually walk with and know him firsthand. He longed to know him firsthand. How grand it would be to know him one-on-one, -on -one, perhaps to feel the ultimate part. If this great master teacher is real, then there is a path from this soul to him. Above all else, that is the absolute of coming back to life and finding a path to understanding. Why? Forgiveness for wrongs of this lifetime. Finding some relief which may bring peace and freedom I am only a man of many poor choices. This is how he ends this email. I am only a man of many poor choices, but I am trying. I absolutely shall be free. And today I'm grateful to know that Art is free. He searched for Jesus, and days before he left this earth, Jesus got him. Jesus accepted his faith and welcomed him into the family of God. And Art got to meet that criminal on the cross next to Jesus. And Art got to meet a lady named Rahab, who had all the baggage in the world like he did. But Jesus forgave them and accepted them. 
In closing, I want to listen to this song, and I want this to be, in a sense, a testimony of art, because art is one of my faith heroes. I look to him as, as someone that inspires me because he simply, at the end of his life, aligned himself with the God of heaven and earth. And because of that, at his funeral, many people came to hear and know the good news of Jesus. And the best message of art's life was the way he died. God can use arts. God can use Rahab's. God can use criminals on crosses. And God can use you. And because of that, we have this hope that someday we'll rise again. Trust him. And if you're not, What's stopping you? Don't let it be your past. Jesus is willing to die to take that from you. Check this out. 